0: で鞭の女が痛い目に会う盗人の
1: Welcome, one and all, to the George Sanders Show Oscar Spectacular. Uh, the Oscars Woo-hoo. are. Yeah, huzzah! <laughs> um, no one will probably hear this until after the Oscars are over this year. Um, but what the hell? We're still going to do it anyway. Um, in the well, middle I'll, of the show... I'll probably
2: have it out by noon. So, you yeah, know, no people are really excited. Oh, well, our <laughs> dedicated listeners certainly will.
1: The, well uh, okay i didn't mean to insult our dedicated listeners, yeah,
2: uh, I do know that there are, are dozens of people out there who just start refreshing their <laughs> podcast app every That's five right. minutes they've probably We're been years. doing it all day Saturday because they're normally posted on saturday, so
1: well let, let's let's okay i am going to make a suggestion right now hmm. during the oscar pre show if you if you've downloaded this um, if you, start, if, you channel, if you turn the channel to E, is it on E? Do they do the pre-show on E?
2: They do. There's, they also do it on ABC.
1: Oh, okay. Well, if you turn to either of those, it doesn't really matter. Um, and then turn the sound down and then have this playing while they have you know, all the starlets walking down the red carpet and uh, the ghost of Joan Rivers you know, um, making fun of them and stuff.
2: It'll sync yeah. up just like Wizard of Oz and Dark Side of the Moon.
1: Oh, I wasn't going to say it was going to sync up, but it'll probably be a much more enjoyable experience. And periodically throughout the show, I'm going to be like, could you believe that dress? And hopefully that'll sink it. you know, that'll tie in with everything, but we'll see.
2: I find uh, that, that most podcasts go better with images of starlets in evening gowns.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, much better than the other way around of <laughs> having a podcast of starlets talking and then and, you, and, while
2: me you just, and me just walking around talking about talking gowns. about our clothes. <laughs>
1: yeah. God forbid. Uh, so our show today, uh, as, as everybody knows by now, uh, it's the year 1965 on the show at the end of the year, we're going to be discussing the best of film from that year. Um, and we're doing a little bit of our homework early in the year, um, by picking two films that were nominated, but did not win, uh, for best picture 1965. Uh, one of them is David Lean's, not so lean, Dr. Zhivago. Uh, and the second one, also starring Julie Christie, is Darling. Um, in between, we'll be picking our personal choices for Best Supporting Actors, Best Screenplay, uh, Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Film, um, and doing our top 10 films of
2: 2014. Actual um, 2014, not this actual 2014. fake, dumb, U.S. theatrical release date nonsense.
1: Right, yeah. So a lot of our movies... And film stuff we'll be discussing uh, are not actually eligible for the Oscars, I don't think, um, this year.
2: Yeah, and and a lot of the stuff that is eligible for the Oscars are not eligible for us.
1: Exactly, and that's correct. Uh, So we have a lot to get to. Oh, and we'll also be listening to music uh, from films of 2014 throughout the show. And, And you heard a little clip there at the beginning of the show. Um, from a film you just watched the other night, there, Sean.
2: Yeah, it was it was the last film of 2014 that I that I got to before before the awards. It was uh, uh, Sion Sono's uh, Japanese hip hop musical gangster comedy horror drama, and it's amazing. It's called Tokyo Tribe, and uh, when and if it does come to a theater near you, I I highly recommend it.
1: Have you seen his any of his other movies like Why Don't no. You Go Play Hell and stuff?
2: Nope this was this was my first.
1: But you're you're interested in more? I take it.
2: Yeah, I mean it's 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 really a lot of fun. It's it's pretty wild and and the music it's just wall to wall music. Cool. Which is crazy gangster stuff and it's fantastic. That's great.
1: Well, uh, you won't hear any hip-hop in the next clip, unfortunately, especially Japanese Mm -hmm. hip-hop, as we listen to a clip from David Lean's Dr.
2: Zhivago. Probably with uh, the most popular song from a movie in 1965, I think. That's true. Well, other than anything from The Sound of Music. Yes. Yeah. Laura's theme.
1: Okay, that was a clip from Doctor Zhivago, David Lean's adaptation of Boris Pasternak's novel of the same name. Um, Film came out, as we said, in 1965, and was the follow-up for Lean um, from Lawrence of Arabia, which is one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, And like Lawrence, Zhivago is a very long film; it's three hours and twenty minutes. Um, It takes place over several decades um, in Russia. Leading up to, there's revolution, the Bolsheviks, um, and the movie starts with kind of the inkling of that, the 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 first you know street protests against you know the uh, the reigning regime, um, and then goes, as I said, several decades into the future, um, and has a wraparound segment with Alec Guinness. Um, basically telling the story to who he presumes is the daughter of uh, Dr. Zhivago, who is played by um, Omar Sharif, and his lover is uh, played by Julie Christie. Geraldine Chaplin plays his uh, wife, and there's a whole bunch of other people in there um, that we'll get to probably um, somewhere along the line. Anyway, uh, long Russian novel breeds long... British film (laughs) Um, that was surprisingly I was reading up a little bit about it before um, recording here and the film initially when it came out was um, not actually a box office success and it was kind of um, ruthlessly kind of torn apart by critics at the time Um, and it wasn't until the song that we heard um, Lars theme which was a huge hit, as you said, Sean, that, that uh, the movie kind of gained traction with audiences and, you know, by the end of the year was nominated for a bunch of Oscars and, and is beloved nowadays. And it's, and it's David Lean's uh, most financially successful film.
2: Um, yeah, is, it's uh, one of two films from 1965 to be in the top 10 all-time inflation-adjusted box office. Gross.
1: Which is pretty impressive
2: yeah um the other other being uh the sound of music of course right
1: which which ultimately won uh best picture
2: yeah the two were i think they were tied for oscar nominations and it was it was basically just a two-horse race and uh i think it was i think it was close everyone seems to think it was very close between the two of them in the voting Mm
1: -hmm. i can see those two kind of splitting the yeah, splitting the difference down the middle.
2: Yeah, this is this is like the the height, like the peak of uh, Hollywood's kind of inflationary boom when it's just making these massive, hugely expensive epics that all comes crashing down like within five years. It just all completely falls apart. Right. And this is kind of like the last gasp of that. What sound of music, conductor Shyamgo? So, what, what'd you oh. think of it?
1: Uh it's okay. Um there are things about it that I really like. Um and I was actually really on board with it um for the first hour. Um when it's actually following Julie Christie's character, um who I think is more i haven't I haven't read the book. I don't have you read the book? No. Okay. So I yeah, I don't know I how closely this follows the book how what what's missing you know i'm sure there are a lot of nuances that don't get into the film um but from my reading of the film uh dr jivago the character is not m- the most interesting character in the film and the first hour he's not really in it so much um and the pres- it, it's the focus is more on julie christie's character who's a uh she's like a seamstress um so she's torn between that world and then her her uh partner she's she's with uh, someone who's kind of fighting for the revolution, and he goes on to uh, be you know a, a pretty big name himself within the uh the party uh anyway so so her 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 character is more conflicted I find it much more interesting um, and I love Omar Sharif, don't get me wrong, and I think he's very good here um, but I'm just not compelled. As much with uh, the character of
2: Doctor Javago. that's that's really interesting because I have pretty much the opposite reaction. Really? Yeah.
1: Interesting. Uh,
2: I think I think uh, first of all, I think I think uh, Omar Sharif is is really good. Um, I think he's
1: fantastic. Don't yeah. Don't get. I
3: wrong. don't. I, I don't well. think.
2: I don't think his his character is really dramatized as well as it could be, and I think he does more than than. You would expect a a normal actor to be able to do with that part as written
1: i I agree completely on that, on that uh,
2: and i think i think the the character of shevago is 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 really fascinating because he's uh he's a doctor, obviously, but he's also a poet and it's more and, and that's kind of his more impo- important persona that's where he that's what he kind of defines himself as and all of these uh interactions with he has that he has with people um tend to revolve around his poetry and his his biggest distress at the revolution is when they don't like his poems
1: (laughs) right and and from what i've heard the whole poetry angle and stuff it really mirrors um pasternak's kind of life as well yeah um so, you know, it, it, the, the, I think this movie or the the book, should I say, is very, you know, thinly veiled autobiographical, autobiog- you know, stuff.
2: Yeah. Do, but, do you think that uh, the film is helped or hurt by the fact that we never actually hear any of his poems?
1: You know, I was thinking about that and um, I tend to err on the side of keeping it mysterious, you know, uh, because like it's better the whatever you make up in your head or whatever you, you know, picture is, is going to be better than. The reality of it. Right. I, Uh,
2: I I agree because, you know, you can just, you can assert that he's a great poet. Right. And then you take that as a fact of his character. Um, but if you actually show the poetry, then the movie becomes about, well, this poetry isn't actually that good, even though they say it is. So why do they say it's good when they don't say it's good? And it becomes a whole different like side issue that's tangential to the actual character. Like the character is defined as a great poet.
1: Right. Absolutely. So I think that's a wise choice. Um, well, I find that interesting. That, yeah, I, I was really kind of more wrapped up in the beginning uh, of the film, seeing these two worlds. Um, well, divided.
2: I, th- I I do think that that like you say, the first hour is the strongest. Um, but it's not so much because it's focusing on on Christie's character, and she's she's fine. Her character is fine. The performance is fine. Um, but what I really like about it is the way that Lean cuts between the two stories and kind of parallels their mm-hmm. their their lives and there's like some really some really kind of neat cuts in there where like uh one person like uh like they walk into a room and somebody says good morning and it cuts to the other person answering something like that which is which is like just a nifty little kind of old hollywood trick that i always like um but as as the film goes on and gets more epic and and spreads out i tend to i i tended to lose interest yeah uh it's got uh, kind of the, the first half is like this, this very contained uh, temporally for the most part, a uh, little melodrama about, about Christie and uh, Rod Steiger. And it kind of has this relationship has like this beginning and a climax and an end. And then the movie goes on for another two hours after that's mm-hmm. over. And that other two hours is much more meandering in its plot. It's just not as, as, as tight a story um
1: well i also think the filmmaking too like uh lean there's a lot of really interesting things with the camera um and in the first in the opening stuff there's there's some really good uh you know pans and some interesting shots especially in that little i love the set that they have of of where christy works the little dress factory or wherever whatever it is um it's got all these different rooms and it's like low ceilinged and stuff. And the camera will like follow people through these tight corridors and stuff. And I think one of the best scenes is when, uh, the first time Zhivago meets her, uh, when he comes to assist, um, a physician helping her mother who,
2: who, um, who we don't, we don't know it's her mother ailing at son. the time. That's well, that's true. We know, we know that a woman that, uh, Komarovsky has had a relationship with. Uh Komarovsky is uh, Rod Steiger's character. Uh we know the woman that has uh that he's having a relationship with has attempted suicide. But we don't actually see that it's the mother and not Julie Christie until late into the scene. Which Yeah.
1: <laughs> well my point about it was uh there's a, at the end of that whole section, um well, actually, in the in the beginning, too, of that section, too, he kind of follows her through some windows or whatever. But uh, but it ends with um, with uh, Omar Sharif looking through a window at at Christie. Yes, who's then who then Rod Steiger comes in and uh, you see that their you see their relationship displayed for um, Zhivago. Um, and anyway, there's there's just really good shots and it's really well composed that whole section and stuff. And then, as you said, the movie kind of it, yeah, it kind of becomes more meandering and there's there's not as much interesting stuff going on behind the camera either. I I feel like it feels yeah, like it, it gets into more like big sweeping you know grand things that work really well in stuff like uh Lawrence of Arabia or something, but here it's just um
2: well, it you, feels like
1: a watered down kind of version of something like that.
2: Yeah, I mean there's nothing there's really nothing as compelling as in Lawrence of Arabia and uh like, I just want there's, to
1: confirm. you love Lawrence of Arabia, right?
2: I do. It's, 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 it's a great movie. Um, okay, let's check. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, there, there are some nice landscape shots. There's some, some really cool, neat um, scenes with the snow. Like, like there's this uh, mansion that uh, the Zhivago's go to late in the film. That's like entirely covered in snow outside and in. That's just kind of a neat image. But, I mean, there's nothing like the uh, the the way that the landscape impacts the characters and kind of defines the worldview that is so central to Lawrence Arabia. You don't really feel that in Dr. Zhivago. You don't get a sense yeah. of, like, the immensity and the vastness of Russia or, like, the landscape of Russia and the environment of Russia as a defining trait of these characters. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily because the movie was shot in Spain and not Russia, but... But I it's, think they did
1: a really yeah. good job of making Spain look. I mean, I didn't know that until after I was reading up on it, um, and I was pretty impressed with the way that they managed to, you know, mask it. But yeah, it's it doesn't it can't do these like you said these sweeping vistas of of terrain or whatever. Yeah, um, and like
2: even the scenes that are set in Moscow, it's it's not Moscow. It's it's no, like it's a, total, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a set. It's, it's a, a set, stage. Yeah.
1: But and, I like this I like the set though, you know. Uh, yeah,
2: I mean it's, the sets that are there are very well designed and constructed. It's just it, in Lawrence of Arabia like you you feel like you're in the desert and you understand right. like how that can psychologically affect someone. Absolutely. Uh but you don't get that here. Um so the the second half of the movie is basically like a relationship drama where uh Julie Christie is married to Tom Courtney, but he's off being a revolutionary general. uh, And she's left alone to raise their daughter. While uh, Omar Sharif is married to Geraldine Chaplin, and they have a son. And then uh, Sharif and and Christy come together and cheat on their spouses. And then possibly have another child.
1: Right.
2: And that's basically it. And that is... Just not. It's just not as interesting. I don't think. Um, and and maybe that's because I like Geraldine Chaplin more than Julie Christie.
1: <laughs> that's interesting because uh, I actually was not a fan of uh, Geraldine Chaplin's performance. This is her first. Um...
2: Well, she gets nothing to do. I mean, she's I know, she's I, I she's, know. she's she's cute that's and fair. she's friendly, and that's basically it. That's fair. Uh... But she does. She doesn't have like the moody, you know, thousand yard. Stare of Julie Christie, right? Like she's got like the weight of the romantic world on her lips. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: um,
1: so you know, there's that. What do you think about uh, the the use of the bookend, the Alec Guinness bookend uh, narration stuff?
2: Uh, it it bugged me for a long time because because I hate when you're going to have, like, a framing device, like a narrator, and then the narrator tells you things in the narration of the movie that the narrator wasn't there to witness. Right. Uh, I, I think it's it's just, like, a, a cheap little thing. Uh, but, I mean, it's I can explain that away. Like, he could have learned all of this stuff later in life. Right,
1: his character does become involved... Uh... You know, he's not in a lot of scenes, but he does become instrumental in a lot of the
2: moving yeah, uh, and
1: shaking. But
2: Yeah, it's it's like very late in the, the Sharif Christie story that he becomes a, a player in their lives and, and gets to know Omar Sharif and, and to have learned what happened. But it just seems artificial and kind of phony and not really necessary, I don't think. I, I
1: agree. And I, I mean, hey, I love Alec Guinness.
2: Um, yeah, I love
1: I, his I love his hair bow. Uh, by the way, though, yeah, when he, it, it's bad getting that Russian cut. Oh, it's good.
2: Yeah, I I, I think uh, the movie could have used more Alec Guinness It could have used more Tom Courtney.
1: Yeah, he's very good. He's very good. Um, I uh, also really like Rod Steiger's performance. Like, I mean, his character is the most interesting character in the movie. Um, he's as I said, he's a total jerk. Uh, I mean, he 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 rapes Julie Christie, <laughs> uh, and he's I mean, he's he's awful. But he's he, Rod
2: Steiger. He's he's always this guy. He's always the worst human in the movie.
1: Yeah. Um. But but it's interesting to see you know he, how he he plays all sides, or he you know he has his finger in every pot. You know what I mean? He he's not uh, a partisan. You know. Right. I mean? Well,
2: he's he's the opposite of of Jivago. an idealist and romantic, whereas whereas Steiger is I mean it's very it's very schematic. Steiger is like the ultimate opportunist. He's completely cynical, he doesn't believe in anything except, you know, his satisfying his own you know desires, his own survival.
3: Right.
2: Whereas, you know, Zhivago has you know, he doesn't care about any of that stuff. He just wants to, you know, write poems and sleep with Julia Christie.
1: But it is interesting the the fact that he keeps returning to try and save them. And, yes, he's got his own reasons for doing that. Um, but particularly the last time he comes to, to um, you know, save the two, you know, from, from being murdered. Um, it kind of adds a little, little bit of grayness to his character. Um, cause he could have just let everybody die.
2: Well, I think he just wants to take Julie Christie with him to, he's, he's going to Vladivostok, which is like basically the end of the world. And so he wants to take the pretty girl with him. And if that means, you know, taking, uh, oh, go along too, he can deal right. with him later. Right. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Rudd, meanwhile Ruddstri- one more
1: performance I want to bring up. One more performance. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, we we don't usually go so so deep into performances here, but uh, Klaus Kinski shows up and plays yeah. Klaus Kinski, and
2: he should have great. been in the movie more. I want he to, is I, so awesome. I, I want to move with, with Klaus Kinski and and uh, Tom Courtney fighting the revolution together. Oh, <laughs> I want to see that it, movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, the minute he shows up, but the minute Kinski shows up. Uh, as this you know, hot-headed uh, guy in a train car who you know, has to be chained to the, his bunk because he's you know, an instigator or whatever. Uh, I was giddy. Yeah, I but mean, there's,
2: just, there's no payoff to his character. He just, he no, just disappears. No, none whatsoever. Like, he, 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 he shows up, he, he has like, a couple of awesome scenes, and has no impact on the plot at all. No. Nope. Like, it, it, it feels like a, a subplot that was like, something that was interesting in the book that got cut out of the finished film. Yeah, because like it just it just doesn't relate at all.
1: But I was I was I'm happy for what's in there.
2: Yeah, because
1: <laughs> uh, you know that comes what that's like at the that's right in the middle I think. Yeah, um, and their big uh, train ride
2: home. to the from Moscow to the the Urals Some country. Yeah, uh, I liked Ralph Richardson as uh, the uncle. Yeah, uh, he's what he's Geraldine Chaplin's father. Right. Uh, and uh, and he's playing this role that I swear is in every single one of these big Hollywood epic movies. He's like the old British guy that's uh, not as stuffy as you expect him to be. He's like he's a little bit flippant. He's a little bit you know uh, idiosyncratic, iconoclastic. Um, yeah, he's that guy.
1: Yeah, my my uh, letterbox review for this was just a three word quote from him from the very beginning of the film when he's looking down upon, um, he's looking down upon a scene and he says, "Brotherhood and fiddlesticks."
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so
2: I, I I had seen this movie before. It was it was almost twenty years ago. I watched it really late at night, uh, the night before I got my wisdom teeth taken out. Uh I stayed up the whole night because the surgery was, like, at 6 o'clock in the morning. and I wasn't going to get up that early. Um, I did not remember the movie being as focused on, on Zhivago as it is. I thought it was almost entirely about Julie Christie. And mm. that was, like, my complaint about the movie for years is that it's called Dr. Zhivago, but he's hardly in it at all. And so I was kind of surprised at how how much he is in it, how much it actually is his story, and how she disappears for a long of the, really, the Yeah, she disappears for a long stretch of it. So um say so, yeah, i was I was pleasantly surprised by that because i I liked Cherise's performance more than than christie's so so I was happy to see that
1: well we 'll talk a little bit more about julie christie uh later in the show um i'm, yeah. I'm interested to see <laughs> i think you just answered my question. uh Well, we'll discuss that at a later later point. Uh, So that's our discussion of Dr. Zhivago. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Here's some more music from uh, this year in film, 2014 in film, not
2: 1965. Um, What are we going to hear now? This is from uh, The Last Five Years, which is one of three movies that uh, Anna Kendrick starred in this year. And she's fantastic in all of them. This is one of her two musicals. uh, And this is her singing. so that was uh, Anna Kendrick from The Last Five Years. Uh, that is a movie that is, is out in theaters right now, except it's not coming to Seattle. You can only see it on demand here. And so if you are a fan of musicals and Broadway and musical theater, I recommend it. Anna Kendrick's really terrific in it. Mike, you would probably hate it. <laughs>
1: well, you know, I, I hope that everybody knows I don't have anything against Anna Kendrick.
2: You know you better not
1: <laughs> Hey, you even have a breaking point. You were telling me during the break that uh, you, despite your uh, affection for her as an actress and a performer, uh, you I'm will really not just see, as a human as a human you uh, <laughs> you will not go and see Cake, uh, which is the other movie she starred in this past year.
2: That's true. I, so, even, even I have my breaking point. You have
1: limits, yeah. I understand. Well, let's talk Oscars. Let's talk 2014 in film. Uh, um, you know, it's 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 time for us to play the game that everybody plays, and where we, you know, think that our choices are way better than the Oscars, which they are. Um, you yeah, know, I don't think there's any, any any doubt, any disputing that. Well, but, my, uh, mine are. I don't know about yours, but <laughs> yeah. Well knowing who the official nominees are for the oscars I, I i know that mine are going to be better because
2: even even the nominees suck so yeah i there's very little overlap between my my 20 acting nominees and the oscars yeah uh, i think 3 4 maybe yeah not a lot
1: well, let's get to those uh, yeah. if we can. Uh, let's uh,
2: uh, let's start with the uh, supporting acting categories, and we're okay. just gonna we're gonna go through these, and we're just going to name our winners. And then when we get to the pictures, we're gonna go through our top ten. Correct. So why don't you go ahead and start with uh, with your pick for the best supporting actress of twenty fourteen?
1: I uh, okay. My pick is uh, the one that. Syncs up with the Oscars, I, I, I expect. That's um, the only one that's going to, I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm picking Patricia Arquette uh, from Boyhood. Uh, I think she's the best thing in the movie by a country mile. Um, I think she... Unfortunately, she's saddled with also the worst part of the movie. <laughs> uh at one point, but she uh never loses face. She's she's astounding from beginning to end. Uh and she really imbues the character of the mother with some real genuine humanity and um I think she deserves it. I think she does a hell of a job.
2: I agree. She's she's terrific and she's she's likely going to win and and I I will be perfectly happy to see her do that. But my pick is uh, Elizabeth Moss in Listen Up, Philip, which is Alex Ross Perry's uh, movie about uh, some terrible, terrible men who write books. And Elizabeth Moss is the girlfriend of Jason Schwartzman and they break up. And there's just this marvelous interlude in the middle of the film that's all about these, these terrible men that's just about her as she gets over her breakup. And she's amazing. And uh, this is a movie I don't think you've seen yet uh but you, but you should
1: yeah i'm scared i You're think s- i'm going to i think i'm going to hate it if i i i i don't like movies about terrible men pretentious men in their books and stuff and uh well this th-
2: this is the thing about it is is that uh is that is that elizabeth moss is so good it it makes you realize just how bad the men are like it's not, it's the movie, the movie knows that they suck.
1: Oh, I know the movie knows that they suck. It's yeah. just, I, I don't know if I want to subject myself to the suckiness. You know what yeah. I mean? But maybe, I, I might see it. I might yeah. see it. Yeah,
2: it's it's worth seeing just just for her performance. She's, okay. she's that good. Okay. What about uh, for supporting actor?
1: Uh, for supporting actor, I'm going with Josh Brolin uh, from Inherent Vice. I think it's the... Uh, I, you know, comedic performances don't, don't get a lot of love uh, in terms of you know awards, uh, which I think is a huge mistake. I think um, some of the best performances of, of any given year are from comedies, and and uh, Josh Brolin just runs away with Inherent Vice, uh, playing uh, Bigfoot Bjornsson, uh this uh, hard-nosed buzzed cut cop who's kind of doggedly pursuing um, Joaquin Phoenix. Throughout the film, and it's just a tour de force of zany, just odd choices that make me at least laugh my ass off. I mean, I was just every time Josh Brolin comes on screen in that movie, I was in tears practically um, with glee. And uh, yeah, it, I, I think it's actually one of Brolin's best performances, period. I, I think it's really, really good.
2: Yeah, it is. He's, he's, he's terrific. Uh, he, however, is not my pick. I'm going with uh, Lam Suet from The Midnight After. And if you know Johnny Toe, then you know who Lam Suet is. He's the, the fat guy. He's normally playing somebody named Fat or Fatty or Piggy or something. Fatso. Fatso. Uh, he's, uh, he's a large guy with a, a really gross hair growing out of a mole on his face. Uh,
1: I love Lam Sui. Yeah, he's, he's
2: hilarious. And in uh, The Midnight After, um, he plays the, uh, the driver of a minibus who uh, takes a shift over from a friend of his and then ends up driving the minibus into some kind of weird twilight zone where everyone in Hong Kong has disappeared except Lam and the, uh, the passengers of his bus and so all kinds of crazy shit happens to them from that point on and he is uh he is the best part of that movie and it's a movie filled with with terrific uh performances all around but but he really stands out uh uh from the crowd it's yeah
1: He's he's my hero. He's, I, he's any, amazing. Anytime he shows up in something, I, I get really excited.
2: I, d- I don't know if it's if it's his best ever performance because he's really good in, in Johnny Toe's PTU, but uh, it's it's right up there. Like it's between those two for the best ever Lam Suet. Uh, that's
1: that's saying something.
2: Yeah. Uh, so let's uh, let's go to screenplay, and we are we're combining original adapted, so it's just the best screenplay. Correct.
1: And uh, speaking of Lamb Suet, my choice is uh, Johnny Toe's uh, "Don't Go Breaking My Heart 2, uh, which I think is the most ingenious, interesting uh, screenplay of the year. It, you know, we talked about it on the show briefly uh, right after we saw the film, but uh, the way that that movie, that sequel um, plays with the conventions of the uh, romantic comedy formula and subverts, basically everything from the first movie and flips it on its head uh and and creates something so vibrant and and vital and and just endlessly engaging um is just a a monumental achievement and i i can't wait to see the movie again um because i just ate it up and I, i think it's really really well done and um yes that's my that's my pick and it, I should say Johnny Toe doesn't didn't write the screenplay. Uh, by the way, um, Wake Cafe and I don't have my IMDb up here. It's right
2: uh, Wake Cafe, Riker Chan, and Yuji.
1: I knew Sean would be able to uh, <laughs> jump in there for me. Uh, they, yeah, they, they they should get the um, the nod for that
2: because it's great. Yeah, uh, I've been uh, I hand out uh, fake awards on my website and I have them going back to 1999. And since then, uh, Waikafai has been nominated for 12 screenplay awards. Uh, nine times in original screenplay and three for adapted. And I'm nominating him again this year for that one. But he is not going to win. Oh, Because I'm going with uh, Hong Sang-soo and Hill of Freedom. And uh, this is actually Hong's seventh nomination for screenplay. <laughs> uh, I, I like these guys a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, so Hill of Freedom is uh, is his latest movie. It's his movie from 2014. He's, uh, I think I heard uh, a couple weeks ago that he was going to start shooting another one and they, were, they had like scheduled like a 10-day shoot. So it'll probably be ready to be released at like the next film festival. Um, he just, he works that quickly. Uh, Hill of Freedom is, uh, I think I talked a little bit about it when we did like a Vancouver Film Festival recap. But... Uh, it's it's basically your typical Hong Sang-soo film, except uh, with the the twist that the story's being related through a series of letters that the lead guy has written to uh, this woman he loves, except she drops the letters, and then when she picks them up, they're not in order. So the story that we see told to us is in like a random chronological order, which uh, is just such a really uh, simple and kind of brilliant little trick. and. Hong's screenplay is so good that everything fits together and connects so beautifully, even the fact that she's missing a letter. So there's, you know, a bit of the story that we can't understand. It's just ingeniously constructed. And there's drinking and and inappropriate romantic overtures and fighting, and it's everything that you want from a Hong Sang-soo movie.
1: Yeah, it's one I'm still uh, waiting to see. I really do want to check that one out.
2: And it's also like 65 minutes long.
1: Here, Hey, here, here for that. After three hours and 20 minutes of Dr. Zhivago, which was fine.
2: Yeah. But you could watch Hill of Freedom three times in the time it took you to watch Dr. Zhivago. That's right. Yeah. So, and you would want to, I'm sure. Uh, Next category is Best Actor.
1: Best actor and i'm going with uh, i'm not going to spend too much time talking about it because it was just what last episode or two episodes ago uh, but I'm going with David o from uh salma uh, he plays martin luther King jr and as we said during that show i he does a really great job of of, of showing both sides of of the man the you know the icon that we all kind of know uh the larger than life figure um, but then also the more reserved man behind the scenes um you know who has his own personal life, his own private, you know, uh, demons and, and uh, you know interests and, and loves and you know all those kinds of things, uh, and he really makes uh, him feel like a real person, um, and that's no, that's no small feat. And I and I think he he really would deserve an award if he would be nominated for it. <laughs> he wasn't nominated. Is he nominated? He's not nominated. I can't remember.
2: He's not no, nominated for an Oscar. Right. He is nominated for an indie, though. Oh,
1: good for him! Good for. Him.
2: Uh, actor is a really tough category for me this year. Um, there's a lot of really good performances. I have like 15 performances that I could like reasonably see as as winning an award. Uh, none of them really kind of stand out. They're all just kind of very good but no like phenomenal performances like Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln, I thought was like a phenomenal performance or something like that. Um, so what I'm, what I'm going with is uh Ray Fiennes in the Grand Budapest hotel, which is a Wes Anderson movie and therefore a movie that you have not seen.
1: That is correct.
2: But, uh, but Fiennes <laughs> is, is really, really good in it. Uh, and he kind of carries the whole movie. The movie would not work at all without his performance. And he's just, he's absolutely essential. And he's, he's long been one of my favorite actors and he rarely gets a part as, as fun as this one. So
1: he's uh, always great. Yeah. He's al- yeah. He's always just wonderful.
2: Yeah. So I will, will happily give him my fake movie award. Good. What is your pick for best actress?
1: Uh, best Actress uh, is, I'm going once again back to Johnny to, Uh Miriam Young for Don't Go Breaking My Heart 2. Uh, the reason I want to give it to her is most sequels, most people go to sequels uh, because they want more of the same. They, lo- they love spending time with those characters from the first movie and they want to see them again uh, and they want to live in that world again. And what's so great about Dunker Breaking My Heart 2 and her performance in particular is that her character's brand new. Wasn't in the first movie. Doesn't exist in the first movie. Has no bearing in the first movie. And, and yet she's the main character of this thing. And guess what? As fans of the first movie, we don't care. She's so good. Her character's so interesting um, and once again it's a, it's a it's a performance like Josh Brolin that is uh, very comedic um, there's also you know uh tragedy there too um, with her but um, it's great she's she 's wonderful and uh it, it's a it 's a wonderful creation
2: yeah she's she 's amazing it 's the best performance in the in in that film it 's one of the best performances of the year i I think it's a supporting performance but what? You know? I, she's the main character. No, uh, uh, she's not the main character though.
1: Oh, she is.
2: <laughs> but I mean, the the you know supporting lead. it's a gray area. You know, I I have no problem with, with blurring the line between the two, if uh, it means giving awards to people who are great. So <laughs> okay, no, I will allow it.
3: <laughs>
2: Thank you. <laughs> uh, my pick is uh, is Marion Cotillard in in Two Days, One Night, which is one of the uh, one of those that also got an Oscar nomination, and she is uh, really amazing in a movie that that uh, in the same way that that Ray Fiennes is essential to Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, Two Days, One Night would be unbearable if Marion Cotillard was not as good as she is uh, it's uh, the the Darden brothers film about a woman who has to uh go to each of her coworkers in turn and basically beg for her job because if uh she gets her job back then they lose their annual bonus and she's uh just barely recovered from a suicidal depression and uh is it's just a phenomenal performance and and Cotillard was was just as good last year in uh, in James Gray's The Immigrant, which uh, uh, by our reckoning is a, a 2013 film, but but uh, for Oscar consideration, it would be uh, eligible this year. Uh, the Academy went with two days, one night, which is a little surprising because it's French. But uh, yeah, but, but she's just that good.
1: The Immigrant just like came and went. I mean, it was well
2: two days, one night. Didn't, didn't it didn't even come at all. So.
1: Well, that's true.
2: Yeah, but she's, she's tremendous. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great field of, of actresses this year. Uh, in, the, in the same way that like, there's a lot of, of good best actor performances, there's a lot of really great actress performances this year. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so great that I, I, had, I have five nominees, and none of them are Juliette Binoche.
1: <laughs> she's, she's in her own category.
2: Uh, so yeah let's uh, move on to best director
1: what is direction I ask <laughs> Webster's it,
2: defines is, is,
1: is it is it coaxing you know great performances out of disparate you know hot headed and and mercurial actors is it getting their own vision onto the screen uh, intact Is it saying something that no one else can say? Yes. I don't know exactly what Jean-Luc Godard did with Goodbye to Language, but I think he did it better than anybody else possibly could have. That movie is the most Godardian movie (laughs) you could imagine. And uh, I think it's, it's... as we talked about it on the last show, right? It was it the last show? We did. Uh, um, it's, it's a movie that uh, is really difficult to talk about, but, um, but nobody else could do it. And I think that that's an achievement in and of itself. And I, and I think that it's one of uh, the most fun movies, one of the most uh, unique movies of the, of the past year. Um, and I have Godard to thank for it. So I, I want to give him... I should have my own awards names, too. The Mikeys. I'm giving him a Mikey.
2: Mikey. <laughs>
1: I'm sure he'll be very pleased with a Mikey.
2: <laughs> uh, it, uh, it's a great pick. Uh, a nominee for me, but not the winner. Uh, I actually am giving uh, Goodbye Language my cinematography award.
1: I would give it that, too.
2: Uh, but, uh, but for a director, I'm going with, uh, with Fruit Chan for The Midnight After which uh, I already kind of talked about and uh, we'll, I've talked about it on the show at least twice. And I talked about it just five minutes ago, so I'm not <laughs> going to talk about it anymore. It's a really great movie, and Fruit Chan directed it well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right.
2: So let's, uh, we're going to count down our top ten uh, movies and end with our picks for the Best Picture of 2014. So why don't you go ahead and name your uh, number ten through number six.
1: Sure. My number 10 is The Taking of Tiger Mountain. Uh, My number 9 is 20,000 Days on Earth, the Nick Cave pseudo-documentary thing. Number 8 is Feast, the Disney short about a lovable dog that just is the most saccharine thing in the world, but it spoke to me on so many levels uh, (laughs) as my dog is snuggled between my legs as I record this. Number 7 is The Duke of Burgundy. uh, Mm. And number 6 is Whiplash.
2: Yeah. Some fine choices there. I haven't seen Feast.
1: It's so adorable. I mean, it'll make you want to claw your eyes out and vomit uh, because it's so adorable, but it's adorable.
2: Not really selling it there.
1: It's so good. I loved it. I was just, yeah, I I was over the moon for it.
2: Right on. Uh, My number 10 is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, Number nine is Tokyo Tribe, which I also just talked about. Uh, Number eight is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice which uh, I really want to see again. Yes. I feel like I, 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 need, uh, I need more of that movie to really kind of grasp it. Yes. Uh, number seven is a, a documentary by Robert Greene called Actress about uh, Brandy Burry, who had a small part on The Wire and then kind of retired from acting to be a housewife and is now kind of trying to make her way back into... Her profession, while at the same time her her home life is kind of falling apart. Uh, It's a really fascinating film and and really well done. Uh, And number six is Horse Money by Pedro Costa, which is is possibly the the most singular movie theater experience I had in 2014. I don't know, I still don't know what to make of Horse Money, but uh, no movie of from the year has, has haunted me more.
1: That's that's saying something.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, what is your number five?
1: My number five is Lucy, uh, the superhero, uh, crazy, just bonkers film um, from Luc Besson, uh, starring uh, Scarlett Johansson as a person who manages to use a hundred percent of her brain uh, and can then, you know, travel through time and fly and stop bullets and stuff and. Uh, Lucy was the most fun I had at the movies this year. I'm pretty sure I saw it at the Dollar Theater. Um, at the end of its run, there were two other people in the audience, uh, and I was just from the word go. I was I was rolling with Lucy, and by the time she starts hanging out with dinosaurs, it was over for me. I was I was totally in love with it. I think it's so much fun.
2: It is. It's 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 a blast. I I really enjoyed Lucy as well. <clears throat> what is your number five, Sean? Uh, my number five is Frederick Wiseman's documentary on Na- the National Gallery in London called National Gallery. Uh, I I love Wiseman. I love Wiseman when he's making movies about art and artists and how art is actually work. And this is one of the very best of them. Uh, I think I I talked about this one on an earlier episode as well. Uh, so I won't kind of belabor the point. Like if you know Wiseman, you know exactly what this movie is going to be. But it is, uh, it's terrific.
1: That's great. Wiseman's one of the you know uh, blind spots that I plan on. I was actually at Scarecrow the other day, and I, and I really wanted to get High School, but it was checked out. So um...
2: yeah, they have. I, I believe they have all of his features, which is really awesome because you can't see them anywhere else, really, unless you you steal them off the internet or you buy them for ridiculous prices from his website. Yeah. So it's it's uh, one of the many great things about Scarecrow Video is that you can rent all of the Wiseman movies there. Uh, what is your number four?
1: My film? number four uh, is a previous George Sanders show film, uh, Gone Girl, David Fincher's film, uh, which we, we talked plenty about at the time. Um, it's, another, it's one I want to see again. Um, as I said at the time, I don't think it's in the top tier for Fincher, um, but I think it... You know, I think he's—he's he's such a good craftsman uh, that he—it's impossible for him to make a movie that I won't like. In in some respects, and um, *Gone Girl* has been one that I—you know—I've thought back on, uh, quite a bit, you know, uh, just little bits of it come back to mind every once in a while. Um, and we will be hearing a little bit from the score, uh, later in the show too, which I think once again, uh, his collaborations with, uh, Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor are some of the best stuff in film, uh, today. I think it's a great pairing. It's like Ennio Morricone and Sergio Leone. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a wacky movie. <laughs>
2: It, it is really good and i i am perplexed at how gone girl kind of just fell off the radar and it i don't know if it was like if it was like too much talking about it all at once and it just kind of uh burned itself out before the award season started but i and you know i would have expected that to be a best picture nominee to be yeah, a, a, an adapted screenplay nominee like it got uh an actress nomination and i think that's that's like pretty much it and it's 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 really surprising to me because it's so that, much I, it's I, so much better than the imitation game or the theory of well, everything or, or birdman that
1: you know even though it's like safe by Fincher standards at least in my mind you know it it also i think the movie both uh you know uh Visually, in terms of like the gore that comes up in the movie and stuff. Uh, and then thematically, I think it goes to places that uh, are pretty thorny. Um, and I think that it's a, it's a bit more of a challenging movie than uh, I think people yeah, want but, to admit. I mean, I there,
2: there, there was a time when, when the Academy was nominating and, and awarding movies like No Country for Old Men oh, sure. or, or <laughs> The Departed. And, and this year, they seem to have really gone away from that. Like I think, I think the nominees this year are 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 really safe, even by Academy standards. Absolutely. And I think I think having, having something like Gone Girl in in the mix would have really made this a more interesting Oscar season.
1: Such a boring year.
2: Yeah. It's terrible.
3: What's uh, your number?
2: Uh, my number four is Don't Go Breaking My Heart Two, which I have seen a second time and is still really great. Yes, it is. It's really good. I, it's, it's out on video now. It's out on, on Blu-ray. You can get it uh, uh, like a uh, yesasia.com. I don't know if anyone's going to actually have it available for rent or for streaming or anything like that. Uh, but you can also like steal it off the internet if you're into that kind of thing. And I'm, I've been excited in the last couple of weeks as, as, since it's come out on video to see people who didn't get a chance to see it in the theater. Uh, finally, getting to watch it and uh, and really enjoying it, and really being as perplexed as we were about the negative reviews about it com- that came out of Toronto.
1: Very strange. Yeah.
2: So. Yeah, I think it's so one
1: that's, that's good. Go- I think it's one that's gonna, you know, um, as the years go by, it's gonna be creeping up people's lists of Johnny Toe movies because um, it's really, really good.
2: Yeah. Was it Toronto or New York? I can't remember. One of those two film festivals it played at and and got a mixed response. But yeah, it, it did not deserve it. It's, it's a terrific film. Uh, What is your number three?
1: My number three is Goodbye to Language, uh, Jean-Luc Godard's film. uh, We've talked about a lot and uh, you know, this is one that I, 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 I feel bad for people. Like you were just saying that um, didn't get a chance to see this in the theater um, because this is a, an experience that cannot be replicated at home, even if you have a three d television and all that crazy you know jazz like seeing it on a big screen with an audience um yeah, is see, is, seeing is it with one three, of the best experiences
2: seeing it with three hundred people that all like gasp and you know take off their glasses at the same time
1: <laughs> right you <It's laughs> like try amazing.
2: try like you know closing one eye
1: right.
2: collectively at one at one time is a uh, is an amazing experience. It's, uh, it's good. It's a lot of fun. Made my top 20.
1: Oh, good for it. Yep. What's your number
2: three? Uh, my number three is Hauha by Lissandra Alonso. And this is movie that stars Viggo Mortensen as a, uh, a, uh, Argentine soldier engaged in, like, a campaign against the natives who's uh, has his daughter out in the wilderness with him, and then she runs off with another soldier, and he follows them. Uh, so it's kind of like the searchers, and then it kind of turns into, like, the... uh remember the, uh, the Insanity Pepper episode of The Simpsons? Yes. It's kind of like that.
1: Uh, I really want to see that, and I was actually at SIF the other night to see the Duke of Burgundy in a trailer came on Mm. and I thought it was that because I knew I I remember reading your review of it when you saw it and uh, I for some reason I thought it was that when the trailer first started and then no it was some like hokey looking western that uh, did not look very good but uh, I'm keeping my eyes peeled to to see that come down the pipeline because it does sound really cool.
2: Yeah it is getting a release in 2015 I think Cinema Guild is putting it out so um, it's something that will be coming to an art house Theater near you, and I, I definitely recommend checking it out. And hopefully, they will free, they will screen it in the, the proper aspect ratio, which is like a a one three three kind of thing with like rounded corners, like a slideshow slide. Uh, nice. Which is which is a really neat uh visual effect that it has that that serves a a meaningful purpose. I like it. Uh, so what is your number two?
1: Number two is "Don't Go Breaking My Heart." Two. I love it. I think it's great. One of Johnny Toe's best. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have anything else to say about it <laughs> because I've talked about it uh, to death. I've written an essay about it. You and I talked about it. Uh, it's you know I, I push it on people. I tell people they got to check it out. So uh, check it out, people. Just do me, do me the favor. Um, it's awesome. Yep. yep. What's your number two?
2: Uh, Hill of Freedom, the Hong <gasps> Sang Soo film. Which is, uh, yeah, is really good. <laughs> uh, that one is one that will likely not get a theatrical release in the U.S. Uh, probably because of its weird running time, would be my guess. Uh, so probably like his last two movies, uh, you're just going to have to wait for them to come out on video or steal them off the internet. Like I think uh, I think Arsunhi, which is one of the the two movies he made in. 2013 uh, is like on YouTube, like complete. So his movies are out there if you are willing to to find them. But uh, I wouldn't expect that one to get released, even though it's it's mostly in English because it's about a Japanese guy in Korea and he doesn't speak Korean and they don't speak Japanese, so they communicate by English. So you would think it would be a natural for an American market, but but no, no, no. All right, so so this is it. What is your pick as the best picture of 2014? Is it Birdman or Boyhood?
1: <laughs> it's The Theory of Everything, Ooh. Uh, uh, starring uh, Eddie Redmayne. Wait, is that the – wait, I confuse that in Imitation Game. Imitation Game is Cumberbatch, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, my choice is actually Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, uh, which I adored. I just loved it uh, from from the first frame to the last. And uh, as as I talked about, did I talk about this on the show before? Uh, I read the book, so I knew going into it that uh, it was going to be you know, like a thousand plots stacked upon each other. And I also knew that uh, none of it mattered and that I shouldn't, I shouldn't even bother trying to follow it because that's not the point. It's all about the world that uh, is created, uh, you know, uh, you know, bringing back this, you know, 1970s as, as the, you know, the hippie dream is dying and uh, it's all seen through a haze of pot smoke and uh, Neil Young records. And I think, you know, like I said, Josh Brolin's great. Joaquin Phoenix is fantastic. He plays uh, pretty much the opposite character that he played in The Master, uh, his previous film with P.T. Anderson. Uh, very, you know, laconic, stoner, private eye kind of guy. And um, yeah, I think it's a beautiful looking film and it's and it's hilarious. And uh, no one else could have done an adaptation of Pynchon uh, Quite as faithfully, I think, as as uh, Paul Thomas Anderson did. It's great.
2: It is. It's really good. Like I like I said, I I really want to see it again. I yeah. feel I, I I I don't have enough to to put it together yet.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, so so that is, that is one. Like I I make I make these lists and I hand out these awards, but they're always subject to revision because I I don't like the idea that you know I have to watch all the 2014 movies and then once i give out like the awards or once i make the the top 10 list at the end of the year then that year is done and i move on to the next year because i'm you know i'm constantly rediscovering things and reevaluating things so uh i give out awards and then and then a few months later i go back and change them all around because the world is chaos and, and
1: unlike me every is. every choice i've made is set in stone so any yeah. movie i see after this that's from 2014 has to be at least number eleven on my list.
2: Wouldn't it be great if the Oscars could like go back and and revote on things?
1: That would be nice.
2: Yeah, why couldn't the Oscars just this year decide to like go back to nineteen twenty eight and say everyone in the Academy watched nineteen twenty eight movies? We're going to do that over again.
1: Right? Yeah, I, I I would tune into that show.
2: Yeah, that would be fun. I mean, yeah. how you could have like F.W. Murnau's, you know, great great nephew come out to accept the award for Sunrise.
1: Yeah, that'd be
2: that'd be great. I'm sure Renau has some family member who's still alive. That would be cool. Right. I would yeah, like we'd... to see that. Anyway, what's my, your number one, Sean? My pick for the best picture of 2014 is The Midnight After.
1: What? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, I mean it's it's a movie I've been talking about all year. I saw it I saw it at siF I saw it again in Vancouver. It's just I'm I'm just crazy about this movie and. Nobody else really likes it as much as me, which kind of makes me feel bad, but whatever, I'm I'm leading the vanguard on The Midnight After. Someday it'll be recognized as as the go. masterpiece that it is, and I might even get you to watch it someday.
1: I want to watch it and you know, you <laughs> kindly offered to send me a copy of it, um, but as you know, it took me, you know, I I had a bunch of 2014 movies at home ready to watch, you know, in preparation for the show and uh, I didn't get to most of them, so it would have just languished. I will watch it at some point. I, I do want to see it, and uh you know I, I'm not against it.
2: yeah uh i have uh this is this was uh I think this was on the whole, I think 2014 was a really good year. Uh, I don't know that it was as great as as 2012, which I think is one of like the great years of film history. but looking through my list, I have uh 75 movies from 2014 that I saw and I say 60 of them at least are movies that I really liked that's good so or or you know at least 50 that's pretty good between 50 to 60 uh so yeah I mean uh, not a lot of my favorites obviously are, are nominated for the Oscars but of the ones that are up there they're mostly not bad boyhood is not a bad movie No, Birdman is not a good movie, but it's not terrible. If Birdman wins, it won't be the worst Best Picture winner of the last five years. Uh,
1: Let's see one. What one Best Picture the last five years? Let me let me try and do this. Twelve Years a Slave.
2: Uh, Twelve Years a Slave is better than Birdman.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's
2: see what uh, The Artist. Artist is I would say the artist and Birdman are about on the same level.
1: Uh Argo. Oh you hate Argo.
2: I do hate Argo.
1: <laughs> so Argo Argo's worse than Birdman.
2: Argo is worse than Birdman and so is the King's speech.
1: Oh the King's speech, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So it's like if it, if it wins, it'll be middle of the pack. And if Boyhood wins, Boyhood might be the best of, of any of those. Like, I think it's close with 12 Years a Slave. So even though Boyhood is, like, I have it ranked number 36, it would yeah. still be a fine Best Picture winner. Like, I won't be upset if Boyhood wins.
1: Yeah, I won't be upset. I You know, I... I, yeah. I, of, I, of, I of the nominees,
2: the... it's not my favorite. I like Selma and, and Whiplash more, but... Agreed. And Grand Budapest Hotel, obviously, because that was in my top ten. But, uh, yeah, I'll be fine with it. And, you know, I love Richard Linklater, so I'd I'd be really excited for him to get a a Best Director award.
1: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I want to see him succeed and stuff. I just, you know, wish it
2: was for a different movie of his. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He should have got it for Before Midnight or something like
1: that. Anyway. He should have got it for
2: Dazed and Confused or Slacker.
1: Right. Uh, well, uh, speaking of movies that you absolutely loved, let's take a break, uh, and hear a clip from, uh, 1965's Darling. Good evening. An American statesman recently said that Britain was a country which had lost pride in itself. Have we so much to be ashamed of, I wonder? Let's find out. What are you ashamed of in Britain today? Oh, I can't think of Nothing? Nothing.
3: Well, the traffic and that, you
0: know, it's a bit congested. No That's time. the worst thing, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, some people don't work hard enough. Well, I work hard in Bristol through one person. I do it for one person. Her name's Margaret Roberts. I've got the photograph on me. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, everyone these days wants something for nothing. They don't want to put anything out
2: for what they're striving to get out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, talking as a Londoner, I think in London itself the amount of um, or how how rife homosexuality has become in London itself. I would say again in retrospect that a few mm-hmm. years back, that um, uh, again two or three years ago, that you, you were uh, very blatantly sort of approached by different people in different places. Really, mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: and it, it does it does sort of still it still it's, you say it's worse. I right? think in actual fact it has become worse
1: over
0: a period of time. But it's one of those things that you have to live with. Nowadays. Yes, it's
2: all right, so in the 1960s, the film world kind of went crazy. You had like the French New Wave in France, like totally reinventing uh, classic Hollywood genres uh, with films by Francois Truffaut and Jean Luc Godard, and you had uh, Michelangelo Antonioni making like these existentialist, you know, relationship dramas like La Ventura and Le Clice, and uh, a lot of these uh, uh, British directors who were coming around at the same time were like really into these new art movies, and so they started trying to do that same kind of thing, but in England. And the result is something like Darling, which has like the uh, the uh, superficial style of Antonioni or the new wave, but is actually kind of terrible. Uh, <laughs> it's about uh, Julie Christie as a, a, a pretty young woman who has a series of affairs and we are supposed to hate her. I really did not like this movie. <laughs>
1: I know you did
2: <laughs> uh, Her primary affair is with, uh, with Dirk Bogard, who is a reporter who uh, likes to read books, and she finds that really offensive. So she goes and hangs out with Lawrence Harvey, uh, who is a millionaire who doesn't seem to care about anything, and then she goes on a trip to France, and then she goes on a trip to Italy, where she marries a prince and is miserable... And then becomes, like, famous and has her story told. Which is, like, the narration of the film is her telling her life story to this magazine. Yeah, so did you like this?
1: Wait, way to set it up there, Sean. Way to sell, <laughs> sell the crowd, sell the audience on this movie. Uh,
2: um, the, only, I, uh, the only appealing thing about this movie is that Julia Christie is very pretty.
1: I think she's also... I, uh, okay, okay. And
2: she's I, I she's give, a, she's a good actress, too, but she, mostly it's just that she's pretty.
1: I think she's a good actress. I think uh, she does a good job with what she's given here. Um, I really do. I think she's I think she's got some really strong moments. Um, the movie is better
2: I, than it should be because of her.
1: Yes, I will agree with you. I didn't hate this as much as you did. Uh, I give it uh, a barely passing grade, which for me is a, is just a common three stars, which is pretty boring. Um, And I give it because of Julie Christie, I think she's, she's really good. She won the Oscar, which was, that's a little bit much for me. That's a a bit surprising, but she won the Oscar for this. Um, And this film also won two other awards that year. Um, So I think she's really strong and I think she, she makes it watchable. Um, And I think that there are, um, it's good in, in moments. I think there are fleeting like moments. I think there are good scenes in this movie Um, I think it gets worse as it goes, uh, and it ultimately ends in a, in a place that is not so hot. (laughs) Um, and we could talk about that a little bit more, but, uh, I really enjoyed, there's the scene in, in France, you mentioned it briefly, but there's a scene where she's, um, she's ditched her, her, you know, intellectual writer, uh, lover, um, to hang out with this, you know, playboy who knows everybody. He's a jet setter and stuff, and she, they, they flee to France. Uh, they go to Paris for, like, a weekend or whatever. Um, she lies and says she's got modeling work or whatever. Um, and they go to this dinner party or this, this you know, very, very – it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous party, but it's this very cool kind of party, and they they play this parlor game where – everybody pretends to be another person in the room and they kind of expose all that person, those person's like frailties and unmask them or whatever. And it's, and that scene I think really goes to show what Julie Christie brings to the table here because her character is kind of torn to shreds in that scene, but then she um, kind of writes herself and, and turns the tables. Um, And I, and I find that I found that scene actually narratively and dramatically um, pretty interesting um and i know what you're saying where it's the, the british directors trying to ape the style of the new wave and and stuff like that um i actually find that stuff kind of charming at times like i i you know there's a it, infectious you know it's kind of got the richard lester um devil may care kind of hard days nightness to it at times where they try goofy things with the camera by like you know Cutting things out, like leaving the camera static and and showing a progression of time by just cutting uh, frantically, I find it kind of cute. It's it's not groundbreaking or anything.
2: Um, well, Richard Lester made a movie with Julie Christie three years later in 1968 called Petulia. That's a very similar kind of thing. She she plays the 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 main character. She's like a free spirit. She's a woman. She's uh, she's married, but the movie has all of that kind of like infectious new wave energy, but it's, it does it to the effect that you want. It is in sympathy with her instead of attacking her. And that's, and, and that's, yeah. and that's like the huge difference for me with what uh John Schlesinger, who's the director of Darling, the difference in his sensibility versus, versus Lester um, and also versus Antonioni and, and Godard who are like the, the clear influences to me, I think on this film, I think you Absolutely. see uh, my life to live in there and, and especially. But the difference is, is Monica Vitti in, in is, is our hero. And Anna Karina in my life to live is, is our hero. We're seeing the world through their eyes and the directors want us to sympathize with them and to understand them. Uh schlesinger with with darling seems to want to punish her like there seems to be no interest in in putting forward her point of view but just expressing this disdain for the modern woman
1: it's a very 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 bitter movie and my biggest problem with this movie uh, is is the fact that the screenplay was constructed by three white British dudes Um, you know uh, Frederick Raphael gets the the nod for screenwriting but it was him Schlesinger and uh, the producer um, Joseph Johnny who came up with the idea for it and so picturing the three of them coming up with this idea together and then deciding to put Julie Christie through the ringer in an unsympathetic light uh, rubs me the wrong way too So this could be this kind of thing. You know, there are people like her character in the world. You know, there are people like that, male or female, you know, Mm -hmm. that are, are, you know, social climbers, um, only interested in, you know, their own career and all those things. And they don't have redeeming qualities to them. Um, And that can be done, made into an interesting movie.
2: You can make a a movie about a a sociopath that is you know, nonetheless well, sympathetic or, or charming in some way.
1: Or, or look at all about Eve where yeah. Eve Baxter is horrible, but the, the filmmaking, you know, but, but the eye that Mankiewicz, and I actually want to bring up uh, Mankiewicz in terms of, uh,
2: that's, the, you know, that's another the movie. Contessa. That's the uh, other movie that came to mind yeah. when I, when I was watching this is, is this is the barefoot Contessa, which we talked about last summer. Um, if Mankowitz had hated Ava Gardner's character. Yes,
1: absolutely. This is the bitter version of it. I call I call this the bare ass contessa. <laughs> um,
2: and I you know I I don't know that we want to blame Frederick Raphael for this. Like he he's an accomplished writer. He did uh Two for the Road and Eyes Wide Shut, which are are far more um which are both great movies and and great scripts and are are much more nuanced than this. So I don't know if this is just like an early failure on his part, or if the problems with it came from somewhere else or the virtues of those other movies came from their directors. Sure. But, but um, yeah.
1: So yeah, I, I, you know, I knew you didn't like this movie going into it and I, I wish as, as usual, as I say, I wish I could um, defend it uh, vehemently. Um, uh, but unfortunately I, I see exactly where you're coming from. I, I, I'm a little less uh, negative towards it than you are, but I think we're basically on the same page. That um, I feel like the material could have been interesting, and I feel like um, it had potential to do different to to do stuff uh, well. But um, yeah, for the most part, it doesn't fully work. However, I think that it's worth it to see it for Christie's performance. Um, I think she is very good the interesting thing to me is that in both of the 1965 movies that feature Julie Christie in one of them, she is called by a character, uh, on screen, a slut. Mm -hmm. And in this one, she is called a whore, uh, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know what Julie Christie (laughs) did to deserve such, uh, abusive language being thrown at her, um, in every movie she was in in 1965, but um, it, it's interesting to see her two uh, performances uh, from the year, and, and 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 it's kind of surprising to me that this is the one that she won an award for.
2: Well, I think she's better here than she is in Doctor Zhivago. I like Julie Christie. I don't really like. I don't. Like, think you I do. don't <laughs> I like. I like Julie Christie. I think she's. I think she's amazing in Petulia. Which is a great, great film. I think she's she's fantastic in McCabe and Mrs. Miller.
1: She's, a, I think that's her... I mean, of the stuff I've seen, I think that's her best.
2: Uh, she's great in Shampoo. I, I like Julie Christie. She's a terrific actress. I just don't like her in these two movies. Like, I don't think she really has much to do in Dr. Zhivago, especially in the second half of that film, like where her character pretty well, she... much disappears from the plot. She just is there to be mooned over by Omar Sharif. She has a lot to do in Darlene, and she does it well, but the movie is just so... It leaves such a bad taste in my mouth. Like, I I just... Yeah, I just... I mean, she's, she's the best thing in the movie. She's the only thing that makes the movie watchable. Uh, this movie felt so long to me. Like... <laughs> Uh, Dr. Zhivago is three and a half hours long And it did not Feel nearly as long as Darlene Like I I, You know at 20 minutes in I looked at the clock And I'm like Oh my god It's only 20 minutes <laughs> uh, I actually I fell asleep At one point I slept for about a half an hour Halfway through the movie And I woke up And I'm like Oh my god I still have another hour Of this movie to watch And it, it, it...
1: Wait Wait whoa, 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 whoa. Did you go back And watch the half hour You slept Well before? no I put
2: it on pause And then I went to sleep
1: Oh, Oh Okay which actually I, I do
2: a lot because I'm tired all the time. I don't know if I've okay. mentioned on the show yet that I have kids, but yeah, I, I sleep a lot. Everybody uh,
1: take a seat now.
2: I <laughs> mentioned kids. Anyway, I, this movie, this movie is slow and boring and See, I didn't really, unpleasant.
1: Like, I, I, I feel kind of like I did with uh, Zhivago that I feel th- this movie gets worse as it goes. Um, uh, you know, by the time she is, you know, in Italy and being wooed by, you know, this, uh, you know, benevolent, you know, rich, um,
2: the guy who say played like the same role. It's uh, Jose Luis uh, de Villa, Villa Younga, who played the same role in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's.
1: Yeah, uh, by the time it gets to that point, uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's 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 really pushing the pushing its limits. Um, you know, I like the earlier stuff with um the writer and stuff.
2: Uh, I like hey, oh, I like yeah, I like Dirk Bogard, I thought he was fine. Um, and
1: I and I did, you know, the, the fact that there were scenes early in the film where um she's an unreliable narrator because you know, as you said, it's from her, pers- like. It, it, At the end, we find out that everything she's been telling us, because she does a voiceover, Mm -hmm. gets published in this magazine. And it's like, my story, you know, the Diana Scott story. And and she's a big fashion model and stuff. And that's where she becomes super famous. Um, But there are times in the beginning where um they get it's it's kind of squandered because it doesn't really amount to anything but where she's telling us her perspective on something like i never wanted to break up his family um but then it actually shows her like across the street like watching him playing with his kids and she's all jealous and um so we're getting you know the kind of
2: yeah it does it doesn't really explore that kind of narrative complication at all like i'm
1: saying but i'm saying early on it it dangles that carrot and that's why it's interesting in those moments when it crops up. Um, and I wish they did more with it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there are actually scenes in the film that she couldn't have witnessed. I think. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. It's, it's been two days. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I watched, I watched it last night. I, I can't remember.
1: It's a, well, that's the thing, you know, it's a forgettable movie. Um, is is my is my biggest complaint about it like and that's you know that's why when i say it's a three-star movie for me it's like it's one of those movies that i'll i'll see you know on my letterbox like a year from now and be like wait uh did i watch that (laughs) what was that um so so it goes well, that's our brief discussion of Darling. Uh you know, we had we had a lot to talk about with the Oscars and stuff. Oh, wait, hang on. Uh, I'm looking
2: at the Wikipedia page and there's a great Tony Raines quote about this movie. Uh and you know I love Tony Raines, uh programmer at the Vancouver Film Festival. Uh in the Time Out Film Guide he says, uh The film is a leaden rehash of ideas from Godard, Antonioni, and Bergman, although with nods to the Royal Court School, which now looks grotesquely pretentious and out of touch with the realities of the lifestyles that it purports to represent.
1: There you go. There
2: you go. Uh, You
1: know, that dude should have his own podcast, because that's much more eloquent than anything you and I
2: have ever said. Tony Raines is awesome. Anyway, <laughs>
1: anyway, uh, we're gonna listen to some music now. Uh, this is a track uh, from the Gone Girl soundtrack, as I mentioned earlier. Um, one of my favorite pieces of music from the year. Uh, this is called Sugar Storm, and it's from Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor.
2: Yeah, darling, definitely not a cool girl. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Atticus and Trent. Uh, Next time on the show, two weeks from now, uh, we'll be in the middle of March, or part of March, and I am doing uh, my Film Noir month. Last year during March, I watched Westerns every day for the entire month, and this year I'm going to do Films Noir. So we're going to tie that into the show by discussing two films, uh, both starring Robert Mitchum. Uh, One is 1950s Where Danger Lives, Um, from director John Farrow, and then uh, Farewell, My Lovely, which is a later uh, 1975 film, uh, the second adaptation of Raymond Chandler's uh, novel. And uh, obviously, I'm sure Robert Mitchum will be our person of the week and all that stuff. So uh, I look forward to that show. Um, And then I want to say right now, because I'll probably forget next time, uh, we'll be on hiatus after that until April, because I'll be uh, living in a cabin in the woods for the end of the month in Canada. So that's the plan. If you are in Santa Monica, or somewhere around there, uh, on March 8th at 7.30 p.m., the Arrow Theater will be showing a previous George Sanders show film, Uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America um, which is a film that you and I both respect Uh, I don't think either of us uh, are over the moon for it, like we are uh, other Leone films but I would really like to see that on the big screen I think it'd be a sumptuous experience and um, it sounds like a good good old time so one night only
2: Yeah, it's a a really good movie that has one scene that I think goes too far.
1: Yes. And if you want to hear about that, go back and listen to episode, I wish I knew the numbers off the top of my head. I'm going to say episode 13 of The George Sanders Show. Yeah, why not? If I'm I'm right, man. (laughs) I'm not going to go back and check, though. Yes, Uh, we we
2: talked about uh, uh, The Roaring Twenties on that one also, I, I believe that episode yes yes uh if you are in the seattle area you should of course be uh be checking in every week with uh com and uh and coming up the week of uh february 27th uh the grand illusion cinema in seattle is playing a, uh, a documentary about samuel fuller um which we will be reviewing on SeattleScreenScene.com and to go along with that uh, The Grand Illusion is also playing on uh, on Monday March 2nd and Wednesday March 4th uh, two of Fuller's very best films uh, Shot Corridor plays on Monday and The Naked Kiss plays on Wednesday and they are both fantastic and they are both playing on film in 16mm so you'll definitely want to check those out at The Grand Illusion
1: That's awesome yeah. I, I'm going to try and make it and I look forward to that, uh, that Fuller doc, too. It sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, you can find us online, uh, thegeorgesandersshow.blogspot.com. That's where all the old episodes live. Um, you can track those down there. Uh, we have an email account, thegeorgesandersshow at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Geo Sanders Show. And as Sean said, if you want even more of us talking about film or writing about film, uh, should I say... Uh, SeattleScreenScene.com is the place to go for uh, reviews and information about film stuff in the city of Seattle. So without further ado, we're going to hear one more piece of music uh, this week, and it's uh, from a film that I think is entirely overrated. I don't understand the hype for it. Uh, I think it's a very confused piece of filmmaking uh, that just throws a bunch of flashing lights in front of you and tries to distract you with its coolness, but... It has a cool soundtrack written by Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo, and I am a huge Devo fan. Uh, And this is the song Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie. We'll see you next time.
3: i awesome community. I feel more awesome than an awesome possum. Rip my body and chop the frost in. Chocolate Three years later, I shot the frost in. like a blossom. Everything is awesome. Stepped in mud, got new brown shoes. Go from the wind Then it's awesome to the loom. the Everything is better when we stick together. Side by side, you and I. Gonna win forever. Let's party forever. We're the same I'm like you.